it is so good to be here on a Wednesday night. Um, tonight we're going to be continuing um, our sermon series. We're actually going to be ending our series tonight on The Lord is My Shepherd. Um, I hope that this series has been a blessing to you. I hope that it has connected you more deeply with God and given you a greater understanding of, of how your relationship with him operates or should operate, what it should look like. And my prayer is that that is something that you guys are taking and applying and modeling in your lives. Um, that's where the rubber meets the road is through obedience. If we don't take it, receive it, and put it to action, um, then we're missing out. So I hope it's been a blessing to you. Just a, another friendly reminder, um, my notes and everything are getting sent out in an email um, to your parents. And so that is a resource that is available to you. The intention behind this is not exactly just so you can like reread through the notes, but there's some application at the bottom. There's other scriptures that I don't include in my messages to kind of help you um, study it more deeply for yourselves. What we're trying to do is get you to dig a little more into the word and kind of see how the word can illuminate itself and give you revelation through studying it. And because um, that can really ignite a passion in your life if you can really start receiving revelation through the word of God. All of you are capable of it. All of you are capable of it. And so we just want that to be a, be a help to you and, and, and a benefit to your life. So let's just go ahead and uh, pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you for this night. Thank you, God, for such a powerful time in worship. Lord, we know that we are not the ones who made that powerful, but you gracing us with your presence is what made that powerful. And we are so grateful that you are here we are comforted by your presence. We know that you are walking among us right now. You are literally walking among your people. God, we are so grateful and thankful for you. We love you and praise you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said already, we're finishing up our sermon series in John chapter 10. And um, at least this will be finished up for the time being. Maybe we'll come back to it at some point in the future. Maybe we won't. Um, but so far, we've learned plenty of things from John chapter 10 and John chapter 9, and yet we have only just scratched the surface. That's what makes the Word of God awesome, is the fact that you can really dig deep, but still only unearth so much. And so I encourage you to, to dig in even deeper than what we have gone, um, and tonight we're going to go ahead and kind of wrap this up. This will kind of tie everything together for us and, and give us an even a broader understanding of, of exactly what this means, this parable of the shepherd. Um, so far, we understand what it means to receive spiritual sight. We understand what it means to be spiritually ignorant because of our pride. And we know that we receive spiritual sight through humility, right? Right? And so we understand what it means to also know our shepherd's voice because that also comes through humility and how to follow after that voice. Uh, Jesus is clearly brought to our attention through the I am statements that we went through a couple weeks ago, that he is the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. We know how to distinguish between shepherds, thieves, robbers, and hirelings, and how they relate to our lives. And there is also a strong call to action last week to not just be sheep, but to be shepherds, just like Jesus was both a sheep and a shepherd, and his disciples would carry that out as well. Yet, amidst all this information we have received together, we are just dipping our toe into the pool a little bit. 
And so with that tonight, let's dig into our final lesson in John chapter 10. The first set of passage that I have for you is just kind of to bridge our gap to the next meteor section, but it is important nonetheless, and there is a valuable point in this. So we're going to begin in John chapter 10, verse 19, and it says, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, what we see from this is that they're still unsure of Jesus. Some seem to be persuaded to a point of being convinced about who he is, while others think that he is a demon. They think he's possessed. And what we're seeing play out here is division. It says that in the, verse, in the first verse that there is division among them again. They keep getting divided as Jesus keeps teaching them. And we know that this kind of division is bound to occur where Jesus is because Jesus is God. He is God. He is holy, which in and of itself means separate. If you were to put sin on a scale, if you were to try to measure sin and where that's located and where Jesus is located and put that all out on a scale, think of the worst possible thing that you possibly could and put it all the way over here. Jesus is infinitely in the opposite direction. That's how separate he is. That's how transcendent he is. That's how holy he is. He is completely opposite of sin. He's completely outside of this world. He is the self-existent one. So it's no surprise that when Jesus teaches, people become divided. In fact, we know that Jesus planned this from the start. Luke chapter 12 and verse 51 tells us, do you suppose, and this is Jesus talking again here, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So we know that division is a natural occurrence in the life of a believer. It's a natural occurrence in Jesus's ministry. We live according to his word, and what will begin to occur is that we will naturally separate from the sin that is around us, and we will be separated unto God. This is why holiness is so important. It's the result of God's grace actively creating a closer connection to him and greater separation from the world. Amen? That's why Hebrews 12 and 14 is so true when it says that without holiness, no man can see the Lord. Genuine believers are persistent in their pursuit of holiness. Genuine believers are persistent in their pursuit of holiness. So that's what we're seeing throughout Jesus teaching this parable of the shepherd. It's holiness in action. 
Some people are drawing closer to him, while some people are remaining further away. Matthew 25, 32-33 complements this very well. It says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. The humble Christian naturally separates from the world and unto God through obedience to his word. We know that we are not in the world, but we are of the world. So while we might be mingling amongst some goats, naturally what will occur is God's word will spiritually separate us from that aspect. Meanwhile, the stubborn unbeliever separates from God and deeper into his sin through disobedience. Jesus speaks more of this division and separation in the coming passage. John chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25, continuing on. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. So this is his response to that first passage. Tell us plainly who you are. We want to know. Jesus says, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. They're telling you who I am. That's what he's saying. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here we are again, right? Have we seen this before? How many times have we seen it now? Three. Three times Jesus says this. So he's drawing significance to this statement once again. And Jesus even acknowledges that he already said this to them. They had all the information in the world, but they had no revelation. So Jesus continues clarifying. Again, this is a sign of Jesus' grace continuing to be present before them. Every time Jesus re-explains this parable is another example of his grace. Because all throughout the Gospels, you can find it a dime a dozen where Jesus shares a parable, and when they don't get it, he just moves on. Nope, they're not going to get it. I'm out. But he doesn't do that with these people. He stays. He remains. He continues to repeat it and talk about it further. He's giving them more time to try to buy in and believe in who he is. So he's being very upfront. He's told them and they refuse to believe him because they're spiritually blinded. He healed the blind man as a witness unto himself. That should have clearly told them that he was from God. That what the blind man stated in, in John chapter 9, that no man can do these things unless he's from God. That was a true statement. But they didn't get it. For many of them, they would not get it. But there are a few that would draw closer to him. As a result, the blind man would eventually find his salvation in Jesus. Jesus would heal him. He would confess that before the Pharisees that Jesus was from God. They threw him out of the temple. It created separation, right? There's division going on there. He confesses who Jesus is and immediately, you're dumb. Get out of here. <laughs> Basically is what they're saying. You're ignorant. You teach us and you were born blind? You're a sinner. You don't get to teach us. We're the Pharisees. We're self-righteous. Get out of here. And so the blind man finds out just what salvation means. And Jesus goes on to explain further what it is in this passage. Verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life. He's talking about his sheep again. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. 
No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, here's the great part. Here's where we get excited, okay? Because this is cool. Nothing can steal you from God's grasp. No person, no false teaching, no persecution, no offense, nothing can take you out of God's hands. No one can take you out of his hands any more than they can force you into his hands. You freely come to him, and you can make the decision to freely leave him. But nobody forces you to make any decision. You still make every decision based on your free will. If you are offended and you're going to let that hurt your relationship with the body of Christ and leave, I understand offense is really hard, can be very difficult to process and work through. I totally get it. But at the end of the day, you're the one choosing to be offended. That's still your choice. If you leave due to persecution, then you're the one deciding that having a relationship with Christ isn't worth the persecution that you're feeling. You are deciding. You are making that decision. If you leave because of some false teaching, you're the one who decided to listen to it, to submit to it, and to obey it. And so you're the one deciding to leave. Nothing can force you in or out of salvation. It is freely given and freely received by grace through faith. Now, one thing I think that can il help illustrate this point a little further is the contrast between how we shepherd in a Western way, meaning how we shepherd here in America, versus how they would shepherd in Israel still today and how they used to shepherd in Jesus' day. Westernized shepherding isn't really shepherding, okay? It's not anything like what Jesus is talking about here. Westernized shepherding is herding. It's a you get a bunch of dogs together and you make the sheep go where you want them to go. It's very direct and forceful. It's not sheep following the voice of a shepherd like Jesus is talking about. And the whole point of that is this, that God is not your watchdog. God is not associated with how we shepherd in America. And I think that system can bleed into our religion, like that thinking, that illustration. That's, how, that's who we are, right? We're being persecuted, so we come over here and colonize, and, and we start all these wars, and we're forming as a nation, and we're rebelling against everyone overseas, right? It's in our DNA. We're going to make this happen. We're going to form this. And so we've even taken shepherding in a way, and we make it happen. We make it do what we want. But that's not how God works. He's not a sheepdog herding you against your will through the door of salvation. He's not panting behind you, wagging his tail, nipping at your heels. That's not who he is. He's not here to force you, scare you, or manipulate you into salvation. God wants you to genuinely seek him, follow him, and live for him out of the abundance of your heart. So when we live this way, we can truly say with great confidence the same statement that Paul says. And I'm bringing this up again from another sermon. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should excite everyone in this room. Nothing will separate you because true believers live out true repentance. And at repentance, you choose to leave all those things behind. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I don't think I gave them this verse, but it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul here is tying us to his resurrection, through his, to his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what baptism represents. We understand that, but it's literally, Paul says to reckon yourselves like this, to think yourselves as being dead. Don't be literally dead, but think of yourself as being dead to sin, because Christ conquered that for you. And all of this happens because you decide to repent. It doesn't happen otherwise. You have to repent. What does Peter say? Repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You have to repent. The old body of sin is completely done away with because you have made the decision to live a lifestyle of repentance. So what is repentance? Repentance, well, what is repentance not? Let's look at it that way. Repentance is not God giving you permission to sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He forbids it. It was meant to defeat sin, not to repeat sin. It was so God could justify you, not you justify your sin. True repentant believers are devoted for their entire lives to overcoming sin and walking away from sin. So when you make repentance a lifestyle, then nothing will ever separate you. Nothing can ever take you out of God's hand. As long as you live a lifestyle of repentance headed in the opposite direction of sin, and unto God, separating from sin and unto God. Nothing will remove you from that. Nothing. I want to do a little object lesson for you. Is Squints in here? Hey, Hunter, come up here. You're going to be Jesus, okay? Uh, just, just stand right there. Stand right there. Perfect. Um, I, I, can't, I can't pick on a girl for this. Um, let's see here. Caleb, why don't you come up here? All right, so Hunter is, Hunter is Jesus, okay? Um, Caleb, why don't you stand right in the middle here? Like, step forward a little bit. You're going to need room to walk right there, okay? So Hunter is Jesus. We're going to say that that wall over there is sin, that white wall, okay? So you've got Caleb. He's the believer. He's representing you and I, okay? Now, Caleb... I want you to, when I tell you to go, I want you to start walking towards that wall, okay? Just walk straight towards it. When I say repent, because what repentance is, is a 180, 
you're deciding to turn your life around and head in a different direction, you're going to do a 180 and start walking towards Hunter. Okay? And then when I say um, repent again, you're going to make another 180 start going that way. Okay? So every time I say it, turn around, do a 180 and walk back and forth, right? So start walking that way. Repent. Oh, now he's walking towards Jesus. Oh, did something wrong? Repent. Oh, repent. 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 Okay, but here's the point. If you treat repentance like a license to sin, that's where you stay. You don't ever make it to Jesus. Repentance is a lifestyle of constantly heading in the direction of Jesus. You guys can sit down. Good job, fake Jesus. The whole point is this. Repentance is not for the indecisive heart. 1 Kings chapter 18 Elijah is dealing with the uh, Israelites and they are doing bad things. We'll just put it that way. And some of them are starting to worship Baal instead of God and others are remaining kind of divided on the matter. And Elijah has this to say to them. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They were completely indecisive. And they were getting all messed up. They couldn't decide which way to go. There's nothing worse than an indecisive Christian. Why? They don't exist. If what we just did here, this is going to be hard to say, but I'm, I just, I need to say it. I'm going to give an account for this one day. What we just played out here, if you are thinking about it and you were like, that is exactly me. I keep repeating the same problems over and over and over and over and over again. Then it's really hard to say that you actually believe who Jesus is. You might think it, and there's some reality to it, but your actions are speaking otherwise. Now, the good thing is, it's not too late. All right? I know that's really hard to hear, um, but that's something that I've had to come to grips with even in my own life. And it's, it, it's scary. And if that scares you a little bit, that shakes you up a little bit inside, that means that there is some level of belief in God. Because you are fearing who he is, and you are fearing the aspect of his judgment. And if you can fear that, then you can, you have what it takes to live out a life of true repentance and follow after him, to have a fear and a reverence for who he is, for his word, obey it from the heart and follow after him. You can do it. You don't have to be indecisive. You don't have to live in a gray area. Scripture gives us a strong warning when we try to live um, in the middle of, of something, when we try to split it between the lines. Revelation three fifteen through 16. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
God would rather you be ice cold than to be stuck in the middle, to be lukewarm. You're either in his hands or you're not in his hands. Period. End of story. He says you're either for me or you're against me. And the great thing is if you can look at your life and you can say, you know what? I've messed up, but I see progression towards Jesus. I can see the fruits of my life and there are signs that I am clearly separating from this world and to God. If you can honestly say that, then you can claim this next verse that I want to re-highlight. Jesus says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If you can honestly say that, that's a powerful thing. That's a check you can cash because Jesus will keep this promise. That's a promise from God. You're never going to perish. No one's ever going to take you, not even death. It'll take your physical body, but it won't take your spirit. You're going to be safe in my hands. Nothing's going to take you away from me. No thief, no robber, no hireling can come snatch you out of my hands. When you remain safely located in his hands, you will receive this promise. And why do we receive eternal life from Jesus? Well, the whole point comes to a head at this verse. I want to end with verse 30. Jesus makes this statement. I and my Father are one. No one can take you out of my hand. No one can take you out of the Father's hand. Why? We're one. You can't distinguish the difference between us. We are it's just God, period. I and my Father are one. This verse is so powerful because this was the entire theme of the dialogue between Jesus and the Jews, starting in John 9 and working all the way through the end of this chapter. In John 9, they're desperately trying to figure out who Jesus is. They said he couldn't be from God because he didn't keep the Sabbath. They said to Jesus in verse 24 tonight, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, just tell us. Give it to us straight, Jesus. If you Are you the Christ or not? We want to know. The evidence was littered everywhere around them in this passage. Think about it. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind man in John chapter 9. There you go. There's number one. He's clearly God. You can't mistake that. They even said it. Who can open the eyes of a blind if you're demonic? You can't. You have to be from God. Think about this. After he opens the eyes of the blind man, he doesn't stop the blind man from worshiping him. Clearly, he's God. He's saying, yes. He, didn't, he, he just let it happen. He affirmed it. Because the blind man's worship was true. He makes the two I am statements, which refer to the name of God from the Old and the New Testament. He says, I am the door. He's the door of salvation. Who can give salvation? You have to be God. I am the good shepherd. Who's the good shepherd? He's the fulfillment of prophecy. When God said, I myself will come down and shepherd my sheep in Ezekiel 34, he's God. He speaks of resurrecting himself and that no man could ever take his life out of his hand. Who can resurrect themselves? We can. God can. He claims to give eternal life. Only a God can do that. He provided them with all the evidence one could ask for. It was so obvious who Jesus was, and yet 
He wouldn't tell them plainly. Why wouldn't he tell them plainly? Why wouldn't he come right out and say it? Why the hesitation? Why didn't he just tell them like it, like it was? It's because he knew the true and genuine conditions of their heart. He knew they didn't want to know so they could believe in him. They only wanted to know so they could have a reason to kill him. So Jesus hesitates to see if any will even have a, have a little glimmer of hope and a change of heart. If any of them will even reflect a little bit of repentance, a little bit of separation unto him. And then finally he gives them what they're asking for when he says, I and my father are one. So what do they do next? I'm going to summarize because we don't have time to go through the entirety of this passage, but we'll get the point. They picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Now they know. He's saying he's God. We know. We know who you think you are. And Jesus' Jesus's assumption was correct. They only wanted to kill him. And even in this point, Jesus starts to talk to them again. They're all holding stones. They're ready to literally murder Jesus. And Jesus continues the conversation again. What a baller. Seriously, like he's like, I just, I, like, you can imagine what Jesus is thinking. I literally just told you, I laid down my life of myself. No one can take it from me. And you're going to stone me? Like, those rocks might as well be silly putty. Like, they're not going to do anything. But they picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus continues to hold them off. Continuing his pursuit of grace. Continuing to delay it. No, you don't want to do that. Why are you trying to stone me? You don't want to make this decision. And that brings us to our final verse tonight. If you will stand with me. This is what happens when it's all said and done. The final verse from this passage, John 10, 39, says, Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Here's the point. You can try your best to grab a hold of Jesus with your own hands, but it doesn't work like that. He escaped their hand. They could not grasp Jesus, not in their minds, not in their hearts, not in, with their hands. You don't get to hold on to your salvation. God holds on to it for you. Here's how. You freely come to him. You submit your will to him. And then he holds you in his hands. It doesn't say that you hold yourself. Does it? Our passage tonight says, no one can take you out of my hand. He has you in his hand. When you freely show up to God, and you do like James chapter 4 says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. When that is the attitude of your heart, that's the attitude of repentance right there. Here I am. He, picks, he scoops you up, your life, into his hands. And he keeps you from everything that could try to destroy your salvation. But the moment that you waver and that you'd make the decision, hey, you know what, I'm going to step outside of this. You're free game. You just opened a door to the world. You just opened a door to all kinds of trash, sin, 
Satan, the safest place that you can be is living a life of repentance in his hands. Nothing can take you out of the hands of Jesus. As long as you faithfully follow after him, he will faithfully hold on to you for all of eternity. Doesn't mean it's all sunshine and rainbows. Matthew 24 says, He that endures to the end shall be saved. But how are you enduring? It's by the hands of God being on your life. It's the only way that you can do it. You can't do it by yourself. You can't grab on to your parents, your pastor. I can't save you. They can't save you. All we can do is just be a billboard pointing you to Jesus. It's between you and him. Are you in his hands? I have to make this call once again tonight. Some of you in here, you're already, you know. You feel that security. You feel that peace. Knowing that Jesus is literally holding on to you. And, and I don't want this whole night to be just like a downer about like sin. I know I just talked about that. But if you feel that security, that's something to be celebrated. That's something to be thankful for. But I can't help but know, judging by this parable, this whole conversation that we've gone through, that Jesus had to make the call multiple times to these people, and still none of them heard him. None of them took that first step to allowing him to be their shepherd. So I have to ask you one more time. I have to ask you. Is the Lord truly your shepherd? Is he your shepherd? Have you actually, genuinely, from the heart, made that decision throughout this series? I know some of you haven't. I know some of you have, and I know some of you, you've already been confident in that. And that's okay. We're all at different places. The bottom line is, no matter what your need is tonight, God is here. He can meet your need. And it all begins when you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Amen.